I loved Gil's talk last night. It was so um, inspiring. I felt so exalted by it, as I'm sure you did as well. Just the reminder of that place that we, all of us, touch on, where there's no me and no mine and the great freedom of not needing and no one who needs or doesn't need or remember uh, the very first time I, times that I began in my practice to discover, have intimations of the way in which we construct whole dramas of conflicts and me and mine and you and this and that and all of a sudden to have it vanish into thin air and realize that we shadow box with ghosts all the time. There's no one there and the great freedom of realizing that. And I was really quite exalted by the whole experience and then about a half hour later I was thinking about it and thinking about talking tonight and I thought of those radio programs that begin by saying, and now for a different editorial opinion And I'm not about to tell you that there is a self, because there isn't one. We construct it all the time, with our stories, with our thoughts. As James was saying the other night, go out of the construction business, stop doing it. But I wanted to talk on behalf of the sense of self. Uh, First of all, I wanted to acknowledge it. And I wanted to talk about its various ways in which it's valuable, in which it conditions compassion. I mostly wanted to talk about not being in an adversarial relationship with a sense of self. There is a sense of self. Sense of self arises. There was a, uh, an, an incident that I, uh, I remember some years ago, uh, My husband and I had been, just come back from studying with a teacher who mainly taught about the non-dual and seeing through the sense of an I who owns a story. And we were kind of excited about that. We'd had a wonderful, in fact, thrilling time. And uh, we passed each other uh, at home. And I said, just in the way of passing, mentioning about a thing that had happened, an event that had happened during the day with one of our children. And I said, I'm so annoyed at, uh, maybe I even said I'm so angry at, and I named one of our children for having done this or that. Hurt my feelings. I said, I'm so angry at whoever it was that I named. Um, And he said, uh, in the most sage kind of non-dual way, where is the I that is angry? (laughs) And I said to him, don't give me any of that guff. You and I both know that there's no I here and there's no I there, but anger exists and suffering exists, and that's what's true. So anger exists, suffering exists. Desire exists, arises. doesn't exist permanently, but it arises. With its arising comes suffering. It's important to see that because from that comes the development of compassion 
it's a pickle that we're all in. What can we do? There's no one there, and there's a lot of suffering. (laughs) I also wanted to talk on behalf of how a sense of owning a story makes it work in the world of form. Preserves a certain amount of decorum to have a story. Remember what house to go home to. (laughs) Who to be with in an intimate way. (laughs) On the level of form, there are certain ways that life carries on because of stories and because we take them seriously. I uh, loved it. Someone told me a story today, which I just thought I'd tell you back because I liked it a lot carrying on with uh, Gill's story about this is a big flower and a little flower and this is my flower. The person said, what if you go in the supermarket you get an empty basket and you start to put stuff in it and then it becomes your stuff and you're walking around, it's your stuff. (laughs) And what if you stopped in the back of the store and opened one of those packages of cookies and began to eat it. No doubt one of the supermarket people would come and let you know that it's not your stuff. It's their stuff. It's your, it will become your stuff when you pass by a certain place <laughs> in time and space and a certain amount of money changes hands. Then it will become your stuff. Or well, what if you put a few tomatoes in your sack and when you go put it back in a, in a cart, you put it in someone else's cart and go off with it. It makes, on the level of form, life much easier if you remember your story and a sense of forward motion and a sense of linearity and a sense of a story. Things work out. Mostly, I think, for me, what's really important is that on the level of a sense of self, we have affectful ties. We care about people. And that caring is what really continually reconditions the heart of desire into appearing, that we care. The Buddha, I think, knew that because metta, formal metta teaching, is built on affective ties. It starts with the biggest affective instinctual tie. We care about ourselves. And the Buddha said there is no one more worthy of your wishes for well-being than yourself. I think he was a very good psychologist. And he realized that built into our nature, we take care of ourselves. And then when we do, we're able to think about other people, recognize that they share our experience, and take care of them as well. Once upon a time, in Hawaii, Probably 15 years ago, I uh, was sitting on a retreat. Um, My friend James was there. Many other of our friends were there on the big island of Hawaii. And one afternoon, I was sitting in the two o'clock sitting, and uh, I'm sitting at quite steady concentration, I was really pleased with the degree of um, 
presence I had in my practice at that time. And then the bell rang, and I thought to myself, wow, I have such amazing samadhi that that seemed like five minutes, that whole sit. So it was five minutes. (laughs) They actually had rung the bell. (laughs) Five minutes into a sitting. So we looked out, and we saw people congregating outside, and we all went out. And here was one of the teachers who said, we have just heard from the civil defense in Hilo that there's been an earthquake off the coast of Japan. And uh, they're expecting a tidal wave here on the coast of Hawaii. And uh, so they want us to evacuate. So everybody go to your room, get your uh, wallet and your plane tickets or whatever that you really need, and come right back. Don't pack, don't take anything, just get that and come back, and they're sending a bus from Hilo because uh, we had 70 people there and one car, and we were at the very far end of an island that you can only get to by a very curvy road. They're sending a bus from Hilo. So we all went off. Everybody maintained silence. At least everybody I saw did, and we went off to our rooms. We got our stuff, and we came back maybe five minutes. And the same teacher said, listen, we've just heard from the civil defense. They have no buses. They're using all the buses to evacuate Hilo. And uh, so we're on our own here. And uh, somebody said, maybe we could go back in from the shore. You know, it seems like a tidal wave is coming. You'd walk inland. But right behind us, we were on the beach, was a jungle. And they said, no, don't go in the jungle. That's not a good idea. They said, the civil defense said, take high ground. There wasn't any high ground. We were virtually on the beach. And and we had two-story bungalows for living and practicing. And they said, well, we'll go upstairs to the upstairs. (laughs) So everybody quietly brought stuff upstairs. Somehow the cook said, let's bring up the fruit and the crackers, which we can carry up, and then if we're stranded or there's a, I guess, they imagined if there was a wave but we survived it, we'd have the fruit and the crackers. <laughs> but because we took fruit and crackers and um, insect repellent and um, matches, and I think that's all. We filled the bathtubs with water so that should the water mains break, we'd have water. And then uh, Joseph Goldstein, who was one of the teachers, said, we've done everything, I guess we'll just sit down. So we sat down and uh, uh, imagine that you are all of the retreat and sitting and uh, facing, facing this way. And uh, Sharon and Joseph were teaching and they were sitting facing us and behind them was a big glass window. So you could see past them, out past the beach, into the ocean, to the horizon. And Joseph told a story. He said, once upon a time, there was a Zen master, and people said to him, what would you do if the waters of the east would rise, and the waters of the west, and the waters of the north, and the waters of the south, and they were all rising, what would you do? And he said, I guess I would just sit. So he said, I guess we should just sit. So we sat. 
whole room full of people just sat. Everybody behaved wisely, was very uh, still. Some people had uh, binoculars to look at the horizon. Some people suddenly materialized with Walkmans. I guess they were listening to the civil defense as well, but everybody sat quietly, just one or two. Everybody sat. My experience was that I felt frightened. And as I sat, I could feel my heart go ding, 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 ding. And I paid attention to it. Just really what was happening, heart going dung, 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 dung. I paid attention to it. I discovered I could take a breath in and a breath out. As I took a breath in and a breath out, I realized I could also feel calm. Not abiding calm. Every once in a while I thought about, uh-oh, and then the heart would beat again. But in between, I felt calm. I thought today when I was remembering the story, that's so interesting when we think about factors of enlightenment arising, normally feel that they arise over time because they, well, they are cultivated. We normally imagine that they are present in an environment that supports tranquility, particularly like an environment like this. That was a very specialized and startling environment. But I realized that one of the factors of enlightenment, which is really wise understanding, is concentration. And I was very concentrated. Everybody was very concentrated. The attention did not wander at all. And although I didn't have abiding calm, I had calm from time to time, from time to time. And I would notice it. I pay attention to the heart beating, 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 beating. I say, oh, that was a longer breath. That was a longer breath. And then I would think to myself, but I don't want to die in here, you know. Just outside would be better than here. This ding, 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 ding. <laughs> Take a breath. Breathe again. Breathe again. And when I was calm, I could say to myself, or it arose in my mind, what's going to happen is going to happen. It's completely out of our hands, inside or outside. It's the same. Sitting on the roof is probably just the same as sitting in here. In those moments that I was able to be a little bit calm and have that moment of wisdom, it's a sort of spaciousness of understanding in which I also remember clearly beginning to feel other people's stories as well first story I thought is I don't want to die and I don't want to die in here and then after a while I thought about my family back here and I thought they're going to be really unhappy and I felt bad for them I had empathic distress for them then by and by I thought about James who was sitting next to me and the fact that Jane was pregnant and Adam was going to get born And I really hoped that he didn't die. And I remember clearly that there was a progression of concern for myself and concern for my kin and concern for my friends 
and then looking around and thinking about who else is there and really admiring the fact that everybody held it together. Everybody behaved wisely. I'm quite sure that everybody had the same kind of inside experience as I. Sometimes very frightened, sometimes less frightened, probably sometimes calm and peaceful and resigned. It's out of our hands. There's nothing we can do. I thought about today when I was thinking about that sort of wisdom being a hallmark of the factors of enlightenment being present. I was thinking that rapture is one of the factors of enlightenment and often it's described in the text as um, an enhanced feeling of bodily uh, joy, um, tingling. Um, usually you think about it again as the kind of sweet sensation of awakened um, uh, awareness of the whole body as an energetic body. I can remember how I felt then, although in my body, although um, it wasn't such a tranquil situation, certainly one in which the mind was startled into opening rather than gradually opening. I can remember what it felt like to hold hands with James, which we actually did for a while as we sat. It's a parameter on the normal instructions, but nevertheless, we did it. I actually know which hand it was, because I know he was sitting on this side of me, and it was this hand, because I can feel how it was. Do you remember? <laughs> We'll remember it forever. I mean, the body was completely awake. I remember looking out at the horizon. I remember how it looked, what it looked like. Remember who was where, who had the binoculars. Every sense door was completely open and awake. Not to speak of the factor of investigation. What is happening? On every level. First of all, what is happening? Looking out. Wondering what is happening. Has the horizon actually moved? Or what will it look like when it moves? But also a certain amount of investigation of what look what's happening to me. I am, in fact, maybe in a perilous situation and I'm okay. That's really a possibility. We can be in a perilous situation, see what the truth of the situation is, and be okay. That's an amazing thing to discover. This morning, um, Gil was saying in the instructions that really it's important not just to see what is happening, this is happening, this is happening, this is happening, this is happening, but what's true about what's happening. How does it all work? Particularly pointed to watching about arising and passing away the truths of arising and passing away. You can also see all kinds of truths, like things condition other things, and this arising is conditioned by, of this body and this life, conditioned by the whole of the history of the world, and here for as long as it is, from internal conditions and external conditions. 
but really not in my control, not in anyone's control. It's a really extraordinary discovery and quite exciting. So if the mind is really awake, startled even awake, it watches closely what's going on. What is this? What is this? Look. Another factor of enlightenment is the factor of energy or zeal. In those moments that I began to feel frightened again, I could feel dang, 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 and the ideas of what might happen come back. I had such zeal in the moment of recognition. Whoa. Okay, Sylvia. Breath in, breath out. Heart beating, heart beating, 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 beating. It's wonderful to have an opportunity to practice when we are not under such alarming pressure. The Buddha said we should practice like our hair is on fire. It's much better to practice when your hair is not on fire. It's actually on fire. We are all on fire. There's a certain limited shelf life to this, even if we don't have a tidal wave, even without a tidal wave. That recognition that it's out of our control and this body is going to die is not a brand new thought. It's going to happen to everybody. That's the truth. That awareness can either frighten us or it can condition such a cherishing of this moment This is the only time we're going to have this moment. This is the only time we have any moment. So there was a lot of energy present. No torpor in anybody's practice. It was very reassuring to have uh, Joseph tell that story about the Zen master who said the waters of the east and west and the north and south. And then we did it, and we weren't Zen masters. And some of us were quite novices. And it was so inspiring to see everybody did it. People who were there on their first retreat ever did it. People who had done a lot of practice did it. It was very inspiring to me in terms of thinking about the mind can open at any time for anybody. We can be startled into awakened awareness of the truth. startle, I think that it's a biologic fact that we startle in our own selves first and then are able to look around us. There was an earthquake um, seven years ago, I've forgotten whether it was 89 or whenever. The, the first day of the World Series in San Francisco, there was an earthquake. And I was uh, sitting with some people. I, at the time, I had a counseling practice, and I was sitting with some people. And suddenly, room was shaking. It took me a moment to catch on to what was happening. Then I caught on to what was I could hear the beams making a noise. One of the people I was with said... Um, we're having an earthquake. The other person said, maybe we should step outside. So we stepped outside, 
and stepped outside and it lasted for however many seconds during which time we were very focused on stepping outside as soon as we stepped outside earthquake finished I looked at my watch said it's five after five where are my children now this one works here and there and this one works there and who would be on a bridge at this point and who would be out on the highway that's just a fact that's just what I did I don't think that's a peculiar thing to do I think the first thing we do is we take care of ourselves the next thing is we think of our kin I think we're wired that way I actually think if we had the vision of people with extraordinary psychic vision we'd see special lines of connection that connect us to other bodies in this lifetime and then I thought about all the people who might be in trouble I think that's the sequence I think it probably is wired into us evolutionarily it's a good way to get us to take care of each other and especially to take care of our families to nurture the next generation of people that's just one of the things that we do about that I think is e- there is one more thing that I think is true that's in addition to wired into the neurology I think it's wired into the neurology generally of animals in a wondrous way to take care of their offspring I just think that genetically keeps life going and I don't know about other people other beings than human beings but I think it's something that I cherish about human beings is not only the genetic impulse to care for kin but the fact that they become special to us not only biological kin but people that we take on as friends and become our kin people that we adopt into our heart biological and kinship connections that become very important to us become dear to us I remember reading um, somewhat early on in my practice some discourse of the Buddha where he said everything that is dear to you causes pain and I struggled with that a little bit and then I realized that I agreed that that was true that when things are dear to us and we have made a commitment of heart to be connected then when that connection when that being is in pain we feel pain and when they have joy we feel special joy and I think it's true that our affective connections are the cause of affective response in us and I think it's fine I think it's the conditioner of compassion I think it's the sense of self that establishes connections that recognizes that invests in relationship makes a liveliness in life and it is the the 
arena in which we learn about the sadness of separation, the pain of loss, and intuit through our personal experience, the experience of other people. I think what we become in our life is uh, more gentle, more thoughtful, more caring. It's so difficult to do a life. My grandfather used to uh, have uh, statements that he made at particular times that remain dear to me now. Uh, He lived very old. He lived to be 98, did not go to school in any language or actually read any language, but he uh, seemed to me always to be a sage. And uh, after uh, difficult situations, he would... uh, someone be very challenged or he would be very challenged in some way. He would take a big breath in and out and he'd say, it's very hard to be a person. I love that. It's very hard to be a person. It's extremely hard to be a person. There are all these challenges to our equanimity because we love and because we care. It's wonderful that we love and we care, and it's very hard. On the other hand, I think it's the intimate connections that sustain us. Here you've been here 10 days now, very wonderfully keeping the container and keeping the silence. I looked out at one point this afternoon, and it was raining, and it wasn't raining heavily, it was just when it was misting. And the whole courtyard outside was full of people walking around under umbrellas in the rain. And it looked lovely. There's all these people carrying on, each of them giving each other space, sharing an experience, supporting it for each other. And probably you know each other quite well by now, even that you don't know anybody's name, well, many people's names. You know people's eating styles, you know who eats more, who eats less, who eats fast, who eats slow. You know about people's socks, how they sit, (laughs) whether they breathe loud or soft. One time, many years ago, I was uh, a retreatant in Barry uh, over the Christmas New Year holiday. And uh, the room was, as it always is, quite crowded so that the Zabritans were right next to uh, one another, very close. (laughs) One time, many years ago, I was uh, a retreatant in Barry uh, over the Christmas New Year holiday. And uh, the room was, as it always is, quite crowded so that the Zabritans were right next to uh, one another, very close. And uh, I was keenly aware of the man who was sitting next to me for the days as they unfolded. And um, I was really admiring his steadfastness. He uh, sat so steady, like a rock. And I was in those days still maybe struggling somewhat with steadiness of 
posture. He said, and then at the end when the bell rang, I was so moved he would do what seemed to be a great reverential bow forward, and I really admired that tremendously. And then by and by as the retreat went on, I realized that what I had thought was a great reverential bow was actually that he was so relieved and he was bending forward, sort of caving over forward like he could hardly hold it in anymore. And then I really loved him and I wanted so much to touch him, but I didn't, of course. And I planned, I looked so forward to the end of the retreat that I could introduce myself to him, just just like that, just to say hello. I felt he was such a sustainer of my practice. I wanted to tell him thank you. And the day before the end of the retreat, he was there in the morning, and he was gone after breakfast. And I missed him so much. I came back, and his awful was gone. And I felt like an intimate friend had suddenly left without telling me. And I don't know who he is somewhere in this world or someone who held me up with his really steadfast practice a long time ago, and he's gone on and I've gone on, but wherever he is, I still have that connection of that memory that keeps me very happy when I bring it up. I think it is not the sense of self that we need to sustain us, but the awareness of connection. I don't (coughs) think so much about self and non-self, as I do about vast spaciousness, full of connections. There's a movie that um, I saw some months ago and didn't remain in the theaters very long. I keep looking for it because I'm eager for all my friends to see it. And uh, perhaps because it's not in English, it's a Japanese movie with English subtitles. Maybe it didn't really attract as much attention as I thought it should have, because I thought it was wonderful. The movie begins uh, in a countryside setting and what looks like a very large building. You might imagine some building where a group activity happens. And uh, the opening scenes of the movie You see people come in through the front door of this building and they come up to a receptionist and uh, they they say things like, I'm Mrs. Yamamoto, and they say, okay, Mrs. Yamamoto, you're in room three, and Mr. Takahashi, you're in room four, and uh, all kinds of people come in, men and women and old and young, all dressed just as we are in regular clothing. Um, I remember that Mrs. Yamamoto being older was more conventionally dressed, had a suit and a little purse and little gloves and sat very sort of primly, modestly. And then after the initial coming into the building scenes are the scenes of these very folks in room three or four or five and having conversation with someone who looks like a social worker or somebody in that sort of helping capacity and they're having a conversation And then in the middle of Mrs. Yamamoto's conversation, I remember the person who's working with her says to her, "Uh, you do know, Mrs. Yamamoto, that you died two days ago. And she said, yes, I know, sitting there with her little purse. And they go on talking. And it turns out that what this is, 
is the place where people go after they die. And as the story unfolds, you get to see that it's a seven-day experience. You die, and then you go to this place, and in this place, you're assigned a worker who helps you review your life, and you get to choose the one memory that you want to take with you from this whole life into the whole rest of time. And you get a week to think it over. And they explain to you that when you figure it out, they will reenact that moment with actors if they need to, so that Mrs. Yamamoto remembers when she was five years old, she danced in a dance performance. They get a five-year-old, and Mrs. Yamamoto teaches her the dance so she can do it. And they film, they video, the dramatized replay of that moment. And then you get to see that all of the folks in this place, the workers and the people in their week, come into a viewing studio. You see them all sitting there. You see them, you've already seen them making the video. Now you see them watching the video. And suddenly the video's over, poof, and the camera turns back on the audience that's watching. And everyone is there except the person whose video it is. They are now gone. They have gone into forever with that memory. So, I left the movie and I thought about what memory I might like to take for all eternity. Especially, as they said, that would be the one memory. And it, every other memory would be erased. And I couldn't choose. I've wondered about it. I've talked to people about it since. Mostly people can't choose. Sometimes people have said, ah, yes, I know. I went to dinner with some friends one night, and one of them, when I said that story, said, oh, yes, of course. Uh, but I'm not telling what my memory is. And uh, his partner said, but did it have something to do with this and this and this? He said, yep, had to do with that and that. But so some intimate moment, I suppose. Or maybe the feeling of if we say out a moment, it will lose its numinous quality. So in that moment, when my friend said, yes, of course, I thought to myself, well, maybe, surely I've had some wonderful moments. Surely we all have. But in fact, I think to myself, this moment would do fine. This very moment now, this would be fine. It's this is the same fine as any other moment. I would love for my life to be in any moment, the moment that would be all right forever. I hope that's true for you, that this could be a moment, the quality of which would be the quality of forever. Because the quality 
of awakenedness, the quality of spaciousness. And in fact, spaciousness filled with connections is I think what sustains us. In the movie, people think over their lives. Sometimes when they can't decide between this or that, they have film archives so they can go back and review was it actually this event or that event. My sense when everybody chose was that there were moments of connection. There were moments of feeling not separate, really connected. For every person it turned out to be a different story. But that quality. I thought we might practice the factors of enlightenment together right now not moving at all. You make yourself more comfortable if you want, but you really can sit any old way. I will invite you to close your eyes. And I'll invite you to become aware of the fact that breath is happening. in whatever way you feel it, in the whole of your body, or just around your belly, or in the ribcage, expanding and relaxing, or in your arms moving a little bit out to the side and back down as breath moves in and out. Or the quivering inside of your nostrils as breath comes in and out. practicing the natural ability of the mind to rest concentrated, focused on one object. Let the attention rest with that experience of breath.
letting your attention continue to rest in the breath. Let yourself be aware the way in which, particularly on the exhaling part of the breath, the body relaxes. It rests before it breathes again. Perhaps that sense of relaxing into rest can be a connection with the quality of calm. Sometimes I say to myself, I invite you to say to yourself, may calm arise and feel it. You feel some pleasure in the sense of calm. I invite you to smile. Really a very important meditation instruction when we smile brings up such a factor of delight in the body. Sometimes you feel really a tingle delight through the whole body. Feel your whole body. So all of its sense doors the movement of the breath the way the breath echoes through the whole body skin, the sounds inside and outside, practicing rapture.
letting your attention continue to rest in the breath and the body practicing that faculty of investigative attention you might let the attention rest with the arising and passing nature of breath all of the sensations that are identifiable as arising breath, passing away breath, and the disappearance. And again, the arising of the breath, and the extraordinary way that breath to breath keeps us alive. Perhaps you discover that that brings up a certain amount of interest in the mind. That's remarkable that that happens. Over and over again. And for the most part, as long as we're in health, quite without any effort. The extraordinariness conditions interest, alertness in the mind, practicing energy and interest. discovering that even as your attention rests in the breath, in the breath and the body, from time to time, the attention wobbles a little bit, is distracted a little bit, and then it catches itself again on the very next breath the very next moment it's not problematic meeting this moment with spacious equanimity of mindfulness 
or balanced, awakened attention in which wise understanding and compassionate response arise quite naturally. And sometimes the mind is quite spacious and filled with wisdom, understanding. Only a sense of connection. And sometimes a sense of startle connects us with our own story, the gaze of attention turns back from connection to personal sense experience, personal story. It's all fine. It's all actually marvelous. If you wish to move in the one way, do not dislike even the world of senses and ideas. Indeed, to accept them fully is identical with true enlightenment. There is one Dharma, not many. These are faith verses of the third Zen patriarch. To come directly into harmony with this reality Just simply say when doubt arises, not to. In this not to, nothing is separate, nothing is excluded. No matter when or where, enlightenment means entering this truth. And this truth is beyond extension or diminution in time or space. In it, a single thought is 10,000 years. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on November 29, 1999. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.